boom, boom. What's up? And welcome to another episode of In The Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today, we sit down with Ann Smead. And guys, I was so inspired by this conversation. Ann is a lovely human being with a beautiful soul. And in 2013, she was awarded the Vale Valley Citizen of the Year Award for her philanthropy and service to the Valley. She was the board chair at the Vale Mountain School and is currently the board chair at the Vale Valley Foundation, a local nonprofit. She was a systems engineer for IBM and partner at a commercial real estate development company managing more than 4 million square feet. She oversaw the real estate portfolio for the Kaiser Aerospace Corporation. And if you've ever driven past the University of Colorado Boulder, you might have noticed that the aerospace engineering department is named after Anne and her late husband, H.J. Smead. This introduction only scratches the surface of all of Anne's contributions to this world. And this episode is filled with nuggets of wisdom that I am so excited for you guys to find and collect. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider following us on Spotify and Apple and enjoying today's episode. Well, Anne, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with me and doing this podcast. I mean, you are an amazing woman and all of your accomplishments speak for themselves. 2013, you were named Vale Valley Citizen of the Year. You've worked for amazing companies and you've accomplished a lot in your life. And now you're a grandmother and just am. living a wonderful life of philanthropy and service in Vale Valley. Well, I, I, yeah, I feel very blessed. I, I can truly say that. You know, all along my career, I felt like I had opportunities that just matched with what I wanted to do. And I'd say that was very blessed. And then ending up here, I've lived in the Vale Valley now for full time since 99. So, you know, wow. 22 years. That's incredible. But I remember you were sharing a story when you got your first job at IBM. Yeah, right. You were you lied about your gender. <laughs> well, I didn't exactly lie. Now, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> okay. I didn't lie. I just didn't quite, well, instead of saying that my name was Margaret Ann, I said, and my maiden name was Lorac. Instead of saying Margaret Ann Lorac, I said M.A. Lorac. Mm. Because I knew in those days that I wouldn't get an interview as Margaret Ann. It went on for a very long time, and I, I didn't ever think that they were going to offer me a job. So the, my fourth interview with various people of this company, but the fourth interview when other people had gotten jobs after their second interview, and I'm still, you know, running around in these interview situations. So I remember this. I remember where it was. I was sitting in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa Country Club with a man named Mr. Pleckenpool. And I'm not making that name up. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and... um Finally, I said, you know, why haven't you hired me? And his eyes got about as big as yours are right now. <laughs> and he said, well, because you're a woman. Wow. Whoa. Can you imagine saying that today? Um, what year was this? 1964. And how old were you at the time? 21. So you were fresh out of college. Yep. And this gentleman at the country club tells you that you didn't get this job because- Well, no, he said he hadn't hired me yet because I was a woman. How did you respond? I thought about it for a minute. I was taken back, you know? I mean, I obviously knew I was a woman, but I never thought that that was a requirement for this job. It's just, I, I grew up 
in, in a small town, everybody was pretty fair, everybody was pretty equal, opportunities were there. So I said to him, why are you afraid? Because I'm a woman. And he said, because you'll just get pregnant and leave and, you know, whatever. And, of course, mm -hmm. I wasn't even married yet. I said, well, first I have to get married. And he sort of laughed at that. He said, so finally I said, well, look, what's the payback on your investment in me? And I don't know why I thought of that. To this day, I don't know. But I remember saying it. And he said, well, I, I get my money back out of all your training because IBM did a huge amount of training in those days after four years. And I said, well, I'll give you four years. He said, okay, I'll let you know next week. Wow. And I got the job. Wow. But it, it you know, and the older I get, I look back on that experience and I think, how did I, what made me have the courage to say that at age 21, just graduated from college? But I really wanted the job. I think that was it. And so the goal was there, and I was going to find out. It, if I didn't get there, why in the heck not didn't I get there, you know? Wow. Um, so then, and then I had a great career with IBM. I loved working for that company. What was the position initially that you applied for? I was a systems engineer trainee. Systems engineering, it's still, a, it's still a career path in IBM today. You are really the technical support for customers. So, you know, someone sells them a computer, and, you know, it's sort of just like someone sells you a complicated, you know, home security system, and you don't know how to run the darn thing. Somebody comes in and shows you. Well, th but this was obviously more complicated in that we were teaching them in those days, you know, how to program the, you know, how to write the software, how to do whatever they needed to do in their company, whether it was, you know, Wow. Payroll and that kind of thing, or whether it was bill of materials explosions at Link Belt Speeder, which is one thing that I did. Yeah, Link Belt Speeder, maybe you, you, the, the company is still around. They make those big cranes that you see high in the sky in big cities or oh. even here in the Vale Valley. Wow. Well, a bill of materials explosion is taking how many gazillion of parts go into that thing and listing them all so that they all get pulled at the right time get to the point in the manufacturing cycle that they're there at the right time. And it's it's a complicated program. And we were writing it with maybe 128K, maybe 256, but I don't think so. 256K? K, K. Meaning two, like 256,000 lines of code, 250,000 bytes in the processor. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, remarkable. And the room was probably as big as this room with equipment, you wow. know? Did, did you study computer science? And no, there wasn't, there, were, there wasn't even a degree like that. So how did you gain the yeah. skill set to be able to do this well, job? See, that's why Mr. Pleckenpool was so concerned about getting his money out of me. Hmm. Because what they did was they took somebody with math aptitude or my degree was in, in economics and statistics. And, and so for about the first 18 months, of your job, you were learning. You were in school most of the time. Wow. So that's why then they didn't want you to quit right away. How long were you with IBM? I was there about five years. What was the next move after IBM? I worked for IBM customers. Directly? Yeah, because I got married and I got pregnant and then you couldn't work at IBM anymore. If you were pregnant, you can't work at IBM? Well, you, you can now, but in those days you could. It was a company policy? Yeah. 
<laughs> really? That's insane. <laughs> that is so yeah. crazy. Yeah. So you were forced to find another job. I was job. forced to find another job. Yes. <sighs> But I had really good customers, and I'd developed good rapports with them, and so they didn't want to lose me either. So it was just like I kept doing the same thing, but I got a paycheck from somebody else. Wow. And how long did you work directly for clients? Probably another six or so years, and then we moved to Southern California. I was raising our family at that time, and then that's where I got into real estate, so that's when my kind of was my beginning slow beginning of my second career. A friend of mine and I were just, we had these little kids running around, and so, and we were getting bored, and she had a degree in mathematics from Purdue, and so we just started buying single-family houses, buying them, renting them, fixing them up, you know. Just as investments. Well, and then we sold them, and then we'd do another one, and another one, and another one, and just kept going. Wow. (laughs) That's fun. That's exciting. So you've always, sort of, I've always sort of worked, yeah. But always been a go-getter too. Like you were wondering where the source of confidence came from when you were twenty-one. It sounds like you have to know what you want and then do anything. Well, I think that second kind of beginning of the real estate career, which became a real career, but it wasn't then. I think that was just out of finding a friend who was looking for something to do, and you know you couldn't work a regular job because you didn't make enough money to pay for the childcare and. All those kinds of things. It was we didn't really want to work a regular job, maybe, but we wanted to do something. So, how did you ultimately get to the commercial developer, commercial real, real estate? estate so, after that, we moved to Portland, Oregon, and that's when I put a resume together and put it out. Back in the IBM days, there was a group of us that were buying commercial properties, and one guy was the was the a managing partner, and then the rest of us would be investors. So he had some properties in Portland, and I remember driving around, and I thought, they look just terrible. So I called him. I said, Ed, these things just look like crap. And he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, nothing right now. And he said, well, why don't you go manage it? So that was the first forte into property management. Wow. And he was kind enough to invest in me, and I went to um, the Institute of Real Estate Management, got a little bit of knowledge of the subject. Mm-hmm. And um, and became a member of that association. And then just kind of from there, then I started working for the commercial real estate company, Scherzer Partners. And then we started, and that was really a large, well, it wasn't large when I started, but it grew to be a large company uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Did you have a, a mentor at the time that was, or a few mentors that were sort of guiding you in a way? I think I had a lot of really smart people around me. That's always the best way to succeed, you know. Make sure everybody around you is smarter than you are and then take advantage of it. I I was lucky that way, you know. There were three or four guys in that company that were very helpful. They wanted me to succeed. They wanted to succeed. And the department I was then running, after about two years working my way up, was really a key to a lot of their business. Because that was back in the savings and loan debacle, and we were taking REOs, which is real estate owned, because they'd foreclose on these properties, uh, insurance companies, savings and loans, bank. They were getting a lot of real estate on their books, and they had to find somebody to manage them. So that was a niche that we filled. Wow. So there were just a lot of properties. I think we started out with maybe two or 300 square feet and ended up with 
oh my gosh, four, four plus million square feet. Wow. Yeah. Did you enjoy that industry? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, so I became a partner at that firm. It was probably five years into the partners or into working for Scherzer Partners. And then the partners decided they all wanted to make more money. And I really wanted more free time, hmm. you know. So I worked a deal where I worked for them for three weeks a month. And then the other week I took six weeks and I became very involved with the Institute of Real Estate Management, which I mentioned earlier, and um, CCIM, and I started teaching for them. And so I was teaching financial analysis for real estate to people who wanted to get their designations. That's really you know, exciting. To get a professional designation. That's how I got to Eastern Europe. I think I might have mentioned that to you before. Just throughout your life and in, in in your business career, has it always been male-dominated environments that you've been in? Yes. It, it, you know, over time it changed, but yeah, at IBM I was one of three systems engineers. I was the only female partner at Scherzer. Did you find, did you find it the culture to be kind of ostracizing for you in this identity? N not really. I, I always worked with men that were respectful and kind and I, uh, and I worked hard and they worked hard and, you know, I, I didn't really see it as a huge problem. You know, I just, graduating from college when I did, I had two choices. I could have been a teacher or a nurse, and I didn't want to do either one of those things. So I, you know, had to find myself another job. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, that just seems so bold, you know, to go against the grain like that. Like, I'm sure m your friends were going into, most of your friends were going into the established, you know, roles. Yeah, they were. Where, I'm, I'm just were. curious where that came from, like for you to just want to well, really go against the grain like that. Um, well, in my in the classes I was taking in college, I was sometimes the only woman, you know, in the statistics course. Or and, and you just it didn't bother you. It didn't. It didn't. You didn't let it. Like it didn't affect you to be in that position. No, I mean, uh, I started out an arts and sciences person. You know, just and, and you know, I just did, wasn't interested in that, and I just didn't want to do it, and. I, I started taking more math classes, and I finally realized that I better get out of the arts and sciences before I flunked out or something and get into this business school. And um, so, I mean, there were other women in the business school, then, for sure. But every now and then, especially in the higher level courses, I would be the only one. And it didn't really bother me. Wow. You know, a lab session of six people, you know, it's, this didn't bother me. I don't know. At this time, like, you obviously achieved a tremendous amount of success, but, like, at the time, what were you orienting towards? Like, what was the, was there a goal in mind? Were you aiming for something in particular? Um, you mean while I was working? While you were working and raising a family. I'm, I'm just wondering, was there, like, I'm, uh, I'm like, aiming? Survival? Survival. <laughs> no, no, that's not fair at all. I don't, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, I just wanted to be successful and, um, our, you know, have the family resources to be able to raise the kids, to be able to, for them to go to college. And because I didn't grow up with very much. And so that was important to me. Wow. And and also my husband, it was important to him. So you, yeah, you mentioned the, the word success. How do you define success? It depends on the day. <laughs> mm, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm being a little flippant. That wasn't <laughs> fair. 
Um, I think, though, but but I am sort of serious about it. it. Depends on the day because you can be successful every day of your life. You, I mean, you could invent a new recipe and make it, and it's great, and you're successful. I mean, I don't see success as you know climbing Kilimanjaro or something, the equivalent of that. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be a billionaire and you don't have to be a millionaire to be successful. So, so what makes you successful? Joy, support for others, love, accomplishing what you want to accomplish, not necessarily what the world wants you to accomplish. You know, you can't say to a kid, hey, you need to go to MIT. And I, I was in a conversation like that last week where the dad said, I think he needs to go to MIT. And I said, have you thought about the University of Colorado? Hmm. Let, him get, let him get his PhD at MIT. But, you know, he doesn't have to go to MIT because he's interested in robotics. You know, so that, that kind of thing, I think. You, you, I'm afraid today we define success for our younger generations. And we set them up for failure in doing that. I can't tell you how to be successful. I can't tell my grandgirls how to be successful. I can hope that they be happy and joyful and that they have blessings, whatever they define those as. But I think we have really put a lot of pressure on our kids today and define success for them in our eyes as our, you know, you have to go to college. Well, why do you have to go to college? I mean, you just make these assumptions, right? Wow. Every kid at Vail Mountain School has to go to college. Why? You know? That's be- that's beautiful, and the, the the way you just put that. I'm, I'm feeling inspired just <laughs> hearing you say that. And I, I want to know, is it are you also saying that success can be viewed as a series of successes, smaller successes? You Absolutely. Absolutely. Because... I mean, I think a lot about joy. And you've heard me use the word blessings, joy and blessings, those two words. And uh, to me, maybe that's success. So it doesn't really matter that you accomplish this monumental goal. And sometimes I think accomplishing things in smaller bites, if you will, all of a sudden one day you look back and you say, wow, I'm here. I've done it. I guess I'm here. I'm successful. Wow. You know, it, it's just like I, I had a very interesting encounter this past year. I needed to hire someone to replace a person who's retiring, who's worked with me for about 10 years. And I, there were three people that sort of popped into mind, and one of them that sort of said that they would be really interested in it. And the first thing out of, no, not the first thing, but in the first 20 minutes of the first interview, they wanted to know what the job was going to pay. And you laugh. But that was obviously their definition of success. Not what they could contribute to our little family organization, not what we needed, just what was the job going to pay. And obviously we didn't hire that person. Wow. But that kind of thinking of just defining success 
as how much money you make. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Or even constraining success to a certain a specific thing and telling your children that this is what you need to strive for. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be a kid today. There's too much pressure. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. You know that. So, and if you could talk to a child directly right now who's feeling this pressure, what what would you tell them? Huh, that's a hard one. I don't know how you help people because ninety nine times out of ten, they've probably put the pressure on themselves hmm. because they're in such a competitive environment. I mean, you have to measure kids along the way, obviously. But I think kids should be free to explore a lot of their talents in different ways. And I'm not sure how that is accomplished in the structure of a school system, whether it's just one school or the schools in this country. But it, it bothers me when I see things like art and drama and athletics being taken out of the schools for budget reasons. Mm as we see this year in, in our school system. Why does that bother you? I think because the kids can't just sit there and learn in, from a book all day. And maybe it's because I couldn't. Hmm. You know, I wasn't kidding when I said you almost flunked out. I got a D in first semester French when I was in college. And I thought, I've got to get out of this liberal arts stuff. It's going to kill me, you know? <laughs> it's going to kill me. I mean, so that's, I guess, what I mean. And the kids just seem to be more competitive than I was growing up. Mm. But I grew up in a really small town. Wow. Well, and I think this is a beautiful segue into this part of your life where it's, it's defined so much by philanthropy and service. You're the director, you're the chair, board chair at the Vail Valley Foundation, a local nonprofit organization that brings all these amazing programs to the Valley. Can you talk about some of the work that you've done in, in, in Valley that has you've found very meaningful? I think I've. I don't think I've done anything in the valley that I haven't enjoyed doing. I really don't. I was on the hospital board for a half a dozen or so years, and then I was involved with Vail Mountain School, as you know, and I loved that. I loved this school, and then I've been involved with the foundation since two thousand and four. I've been on the board since two thousand and four and chaired it for the last five years. It's been an extraordinary experience, and I've been. You know, I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity uh, and continue to have to be the chair of the board. It's an organization that has developed in so many different ways. And I think in the last year, because of the pandemic, we realized that we had another larger role to play in this community. It's always been enhancing the quality of life for people who live, work, and play here through arts, athletics, and education. That's the mission statement, in my words. And I think we realized more than ever this year that the underpinnings of arts, athletics, and education were community. Hmm. And so we went out and raised $1.6 million for the community fund, the Vail Valley Foundation Community Fund. We have a, um, a steering committee that looks at grant requests from organizations in the Valley. And we've granted probably close to a million two now. I think we have about $300,000 left. We, we just, really the president, Mike Imhoff, came to me. I'll never forget the call. And he said, I think we can raise some money. I think we need to, to look at four areas of need in our valley. Housing, food, mental health, and children's services. 
through this pandemic. And he said, I think we need to raise $250,000 and maybe maybe by Monday or Tuesday. And this was like Friday. No way. Yeah, and that's what I said, no way. No, I didn't say no way because I knew our board and I knew of the generosity of this community. And by Thursday of that next week, I think we had $425,000. And then when we went out for a match, some 630 people in this value, and I'm sure the number's more by now, stepped up from five bucks to 200,000. And I mean, that makes us, that you talked about why this valley's special. That's one of the reasons. The people are very philanthropic in this valley and they, they really care about every, for the most part. I mean, there's always exceptions, but. And you think the strength of the community or the strength of the town comes from community and building community? I think it does. I really do think it does. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier in the interview, joy being the centerpiece in, in life. I'm, I'm curious, what in your life gives you the greatest joys right now? Oh, I have to say the grand girls. <laughs> I, would, I mean, one of them is going to listen to the podcast, I think. No, they, they give me great joy. And helping people and just seeing people happy, you know? Uh, and yet, and yet there's, there's a serious side of me, and they'll, everybody will tell you that, that um, I don't just flippantly want the world to be happy. I, I mean, that's not possible. But I do want everyone to, if they can, have the opportunity to reach their potential. And so things like the magic bus give me joy. Uh, do you know about the magic bus? Can you explain what the yeah. magic bus is? It's, it's a mobile preschool uh, that, that goes around. In fact, we have our newest magic bus is the first electric preschool uh, or classroom in the country. Wow. Yeah. And that was another community partnership. Holy Cross Energies supplying the power for the electric bus. And, <clears throat> and we go from areas of need where kids can't get to preschool or their families don't have the resources to get them to preschool. And, uh, and we teach preschool. It's so wonderful. Yeah, it really is. It's great. And it's an all-electric, battery-powered... Battery-powered bus, bus. yeah. <laughs> oh, that is yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those kinds of things give me joy. You know? I, well, everybody's tired of hearing me talk about perseverance and, you know, and the helicopter ingenuity, which is going to fly next Monday morning at 1.30 or some silly time. Uh, but my involvement with the aerospace department at, at the University of Colorado, which came from Joe's involvement, and then I was very fortunate that Michael uh, wanted to continue that with me. So... As you may know, the uh, aerospace, the new aerospace building, is named after Joe and I. Um, you know, that's incredible honor, great joy. Yeah, wow. I was thinking about it today. We started the Smead um, Fellows Program in two thousand and six, so we have had like thirty fellows through the program now, and and. You know, you you think about somebody with a degree in aerospace engineering as sitting there, you know, writing code for perseverance or something like that. But we have people designing um, blades for for windmills, for solar. We have people, uh, a young woman's designing a, a pediatric heart valve that will expand with the child. Wow. And they all have aerospace engineering degrees. 
So look at, I mean, just look at what you can do with anything, you know? That is so yeah. cool. Yeah, it really is and, cool. And some grad, some people involved with the aerospace engineering department at UC Boulder contributed to the NASA mission currently taking oh, yeah. place on Mars? Oh, yeah, you bet they did. That you is incredible. Yeah. Well, what would you say to someone thinking about getting an aerospace engineering degree? Uh, they're come now that have come to UC Boulder. Uh, no, I, what I would say, I mean, you know, it was so simple when I grew up. You just went to school and you sort of took what they gave you. Uh, maybe a few electives along the way. And now that's another thing that makes life more complicated for our kids. Where are they going to go to college and what are they going to do? And they're supposed to know that at age 17 or 18 when they get their high school diploma, you know. But I would say... If, if you are interested in, in aerospace or the sciences at all, um, do look at CU Boulder because it's, it's an extraordinary program. Um, and just look at, at, at all the opportunities that are out there. There are just hundreds of them. Yeah. It is so amazing and inspiring to think about space and exploration and all oh, the I places know. we haven't been. <laughs> I, I bet someday, not in my lifetime, maybe in your lifetime, we will have a colony on Mars. That's, that's a crazy, it's, it sounds crazy, but... Uh, I think it's possible. Wow. I really do. Hopefully uh, Elon Musk or someone else Well, there, you, you mentioned SpaceX has a four-person spaceship. I just got the announcement or the invitation from NASA today to... Tune in. I think it's the twenty. They're going to launch on the twenty second of this month. The twenty second of April, twenty twenty one. Yeah. SpaceX is going to launch uh, a four person uh, crew crew into outer space just to see if I don't know. I haven't read what the mission plan is. So exciting! I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's, you know, they're going. You mentioned Elon Musk, and that's why I wow. thought of SpaceX. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. seeing all the development. By the way, you ask about women in business. The the President of SpaceX is a woman. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. What's her? Do you know her? I can't remember her name. Wow! I've met her, yes, but I don't remember her name. Do you? Is, is there like when you meet someone else in that field? Do you feel like connected? You know, another female in the in, in the business world. Does it feel like a community at all? Or I yeah, I bet it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of them, you know, are uh, so brilliant that I feel sort of intimidated and more than connected. <laughs> right, but those are the kind of people you want to be hanging around. Yeah, yeah, you do. That's what I said. You, right. know? you find a bunch of smart people and figure out how to work in the same same fields with them and move the process along. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, do you live with any regrets? Do I live with any regrets? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure I do. I can't, um, I can't really name them for you. But I think as you look back on your life, you'd say, oh, I wish I'd done that differently or that differently. Or um, I think it's dangerous to dwell on them. Mm. To think too long on. Yeah, because, you know, I wish I'd done, but if you analyze what you'd wish you'd done, you probably couldn't have done it anyway at that time. Right. Yeah. You you make decisions based, you know, the best you can yeah, at the moment. At the moment, that's exactly right. Um, and... You know, you, you never will have enough data. So you've got to make a decision with the data you have at the time. Mm. You know? wow. So, yeah, you look back and you say, shouldn't have done that. That was a really dumb idea or whatever. Right. But Were there any big failures that you experienced that maybe set you up for a later success? 
Yeah. I had a brief period between working with my IBM customers, moving to Portland and starting with the real estate guys, that I sold Canon copiers for a year. I don't know why I ever took the job. Maybe it was two years, but it was a horrible job for me. I just, just, oh, it was just an awful job. And I think it set me up because I really only worked in the one kind of field, you know, the IBM and data processing and that kind of field. So I didn't really, hadn't really tried anything else. And so I figured out very quickly from trying that something I didn't want to do. Mm. And then that's when I got serious about the, wow. and so, set my resumes out for the real estate job and got it and so forth. Well, and it's been a, a total joy. It's my pleasure. Having you on this podcast. Uh, was there any, was there anything else you wanted to add or any little tidbit of wisdom that you just. Tidbit of wisdom. <laughs> that you want to leave with us? I don't us know before? that I have any. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, yeah. I, there is one thing that I've mentioned a couple times about um, feeling like our kids are under too much pressure today and whatever. I would just to any any young people who are listening to, you know, follow that joy that you can find, and uh, don't be afraid to think a little outside the box. Don't feel like you have to graduate from college in four years. Give yourself some time to enjoy some creativity in your life, and it, you know you'll find there's going to be in the next ten years jobs we haven't ever thought of available, and those will be available to anybody who wants to work. So I would say take that take that time to enjoy life, whatever that is for you, uh, along the way. And, and the second thing I would say is, for heaven's sakes, don't worry more about the salary than what you can contribute to the company that you're going to work for. It's not about what they're going to give you, if you think about it. It's, remember what JFK said. Don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The same thing as getting a job. What can you do for that company? Not what they're going to pay you. And you'll be very successful. Wow. And thank you so much. You're welcome. It has been a complete pleasure. It's been my pleasure to get to know you. It's fun. <laughs> I've never had. I've never been part of a podcast well, before. Well, I'm. I, it is my. I am so thrilled that I, I get to be the one to experience it. 